0: All right, we're going to start today with the 130th psalm. This is a song of ascents. Out of the depths I cried to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I do hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than those who watch for the morning. Yes, more than those who watch for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is mercy and with him is abundant redemption and he shall redeem Israel from all his iniquities. And I do think I read that last week as our uh, opening Psalm. Uh, I don't know how I made that mistake. So uh, anyway, apologize for that. But uh, let's say a quick prayer and get opened. Heavenly Father, thank you so very, very much for this beautiful day. Thank you for the opportunity to come out and share with other believers and uh, your presence and just to uh, give you the glory that you're due all of the splendor and majesty that you lavish upon us. And and, uh, sometimes we just forget to say thank you for the simplest flower or for the most uh, wonderful blessing of another child born into the world, whatever it is. It's it's always due to you for praise and honor and glory. And uh, help us to remember that. Help us to be honorable in our lives and uh, conduct ourselves in a way which is worthy of you and that others will see and want to know why we have this great hope in us. And uh, help us to be uh, proper stewards of everything that you've given us and just to take care of the things of this world. Oh God, we just love you. We praise you. We thank you for everything that you've done for us. And it's in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus that we pray, amen. Well, we have just a few announcements. I uh, was talking to Darla here a second ago about the uh, building that we've bought and uh, it's been three weeks and absolutely nothing has been done. And that's because of uh, you know the county sending things back to the engineer and they're trying to get things sorted out and you know we have to wait for permits and uh uh, i was told that this would be quicker and another friend told me no way the county is going to take forever to get it done so we're still waiting to get started but once we get started other than the final approval of whatever work is done it should go pretty quickly and uh it's uh now the middle towards the end of april which means that uh probably june by now we'll get in there i don't know but um anyway, something I announce every single week, and I'll announce it again this week, is that if you want to be baptized, um, there's water behind us, and we can, uh, go out and, uh, get in the water and get dunked anytime, and we have a gentleman, I would hope that all of you would stay today, because, uh, a gentleman down from, uh, Canada, who has been here for the past three weeks, and, uh, he's heard me say this, and, uh, he said last week that he'd like to go through with that, so here we go, Tony's gonna get, uh, baptized today, so if you can, please stay, and, uh, cheer him on with that and i will explain now uh, just so that uh, anybody that's listening understands this as well i kind of give a uh, brief description of this um baptism is something that we do in a sign of what we have already done in other words we accept jesus christ as lord and savior and paul is very clear he says if you call on the name of the lord and you believe in your heart that god has raised him from the dead you will be saved that's all that's required to be saved Now, some churches say we want people to be baptized in order to be church members. And the reason why is because it's one of the two ordinances that the Lord commanded, the other being the Lord's Supper. And uh, so if you have not been baptized, they won't let you be a member. I'm not sure if I agree with that because you're a member of Christ's overall church once you've accepted him as Lord. And that's a personal thing. Baptism can be done by anybody and it doesn't really mean anything if there's not an inward change in your heart. Other churches will tell you that if you don't get baptized, you can't be saved. Well, one that's adding to the Lord's word and it's also proven false by the man that hung on the cross next to Jesus. Uh, The the man wasn't baptized after he uh, confessed the Lord, but the Lord said, today you will be with me in paradise. All we are doing is we are saying that I understand that Jesus Christ died for me and that he was raised again for my justification. And so um, uh, we are baptized under the water as a picture of his burial and were raised to newness of life through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's a picture of coming out of the water. And we're just showing the world that this is something that we uh, uh, I, are, that I am personally acknowledging to the world. It's an open profession of the vow that I've already made. And um, uh, Paul explains it very well in the book of Corinthians. I think it's one Corinthians, might be two Corinthians. But anyway, uh, he explains the uh, symbolism of baptism very well and he equates it with the uh, uh, Israelites being brought through the Red Sea and uh, uh, anyway I had one more point that I was trying to get to with it I can't remember it but baptism in itself does not save anybody but it does show obedience and I remember my point now is that when people called on the name of the Lord in the Bible the first thing they did afterwards was take them out and baptize them and so it, it is showing obedience to the bible and it's showing obedience to the lord in his command to be baptized so uh, my hat is off to tony for that we'll uh, take him out there later and i will hope to remember to bring him back out once i put him under and uh, as long as we do that then everything will have been done successfully and um, we have a new testament reading i'll do today Uh, the sermon is not a long one and so uh, we're going to go to romans 14 and just read verses 14 through 23 and uh, he says i know and I am convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean in and of itself, but to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Now we're going back to uh, eating and drinking that we talked about last week. And um, Paul was an observant Jew. He was a Pharisee. He was you know, as high as you can go in the land of Israel as far as being a, uh, a keeper of the law. And uh, he would know better than anybody that if pork which under the law was unclean and you were not allowed to eat i mean you were just not allowed to do that if he says nothing is in and of itself unclean that pork is now something that we can eat the law is fulfilled in jesus christ and therefore we are not bound to the law any longer and that's why we can eat pork is because he's the one that cleans us it's not something uh uh, external. It's not something that we eat, which makes us internally clean. Jesus even said, you know, out of your heart come these desires and these lusts and all these things, and that's what makes you unclean. But uh, anyway, Paul is saying, uh, as a person that knew the law and that knew the freedom from the law because of Christ, that nothing is in and unclean in and of itself. Verse 15, yet your uh, brother is grieved because of your food. You are no longer walking in love. Do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. Now, this kind of ties in the previous verse and this one with what he talks about eating meat that was sacrificed in an idol at a temple or in front of an idol. And um, Paul says, an idol is nothing. They're nothing in all the world. And if you go to a a temple and there's meat that was sacrificed to an idol and you know that that wasn't sacrificed to any God and you're hungry, eat the meat, don't worry about it. But if somebody knows that you're a Christian and you eat that in front of them, you may harm their, uh, their understanding if they think that there's something wrong with doing that. So he says, don't do that if it's going to harm somebody else don't eat something that is going to bring down their understanding of you or the person that's sacrificing he knows that you're a christian you're eating you may be in his eyes condoning his god which is no god at all so paul is saying use wisdom when you eat uh, a animal that's sacrificed to an idol if nobody's around and it doesn't matter just eat the food because the the animal was created by god and you're giving thanks to the true god for it eat it and uh, he goes on with this type of, this line of thought, and he says, it is not for your conscience sake, but for the other person's conscience sake that you are not doing these things, okay? So that's uh, what he's talking about there. And then he says in uh, verse 16, therefore, do not let your good be spoken of as evil. There's nothing wrong with eating this, you're doing good. But somebody can say, well, he's a bad guy. He's, you know, he's eating meat sacrificed by, uh, 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 to a, a false god, and therefore he believes in false gods. And when in fact you didn't at all, but somebody may be speaking bad about it in, because they've misperceived what you're doing. Anyway, verse 17, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Well, obviously the kingdom of God is not about anything earthly and eating and drinking and all the other things that we do in this world are earthly things. We're living in this life, we're to be in this world, but not to be a part of the world, but we have to be in the world and we have to use the things of the world to move forward. But the kingdom of God is something on an entirely different level. It is a spiritual level. And as he says, it is righteousness, it is peace, it is joy in the Holy Spirit. Verse 18, for he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. Okay, 19, therefore let us pursue the things which make peace and the things make for peace and the things which make one edify another. Build each other up, edify each other be gracious to each other do the things which are going to build up uh christ will build up the body of christ and not tear other people down and i could give a good example of something that happened about a week and a half ago a guy called me about an issue that he disagrees with in the bible it's not a salvation issue and we got in this kind of argument over something i said you're not going to change my mind so don't call me over this issue but he felt necessary to continue going on about it and uh, it, 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 there's nothing happy to be resolved from that. He perceives this issue, this issue differently than me. One of us is wrong. That's all there is to it. We can work this out without badgering each other about it. And if somebody feels differently about that particular issue, as Paul says elsewhere, the Lord will show it to them. We will We will know the truth of these matters at some point in the future. But right now, if somebody is just adamant and they're trained in a theology that is different than mine, I'm not going to change their minds by calling them up and being accusative of of them. I'm going to change their mind by asking them to, you know, sending them verses to consider and to not reject these things outright. Anyway, so that's just kind of an example there. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for the man who eats with offense all things are good. And that goes right back to Genesis uh, chapter nine. It's about the sixth verse where God says, behold, everything is in your hand. Just as you've had the, uh, the uh, plants and the herbs to eat, now I give you everything to eat. And there was no restriction put on any human being in the world until the time of Moses. And that was the law of Moses to the people of Israel and to nobody else. It pertained to nobody else on earth. And so when Jesus Christ fulfilled that law, what was acceptable to the world is now acceptable back to the people of Israel as it was with the rest of the world. We can eat anything. It is all clean because it's God's. It doesn't mean to eat everything. You don't want to eat a snake and not take out the bag of poison under its neck or it's obviously going to kill you. There are certain things you shouldn't be eating, but that's not the point that he's making. He's saying that all things are clean and he's talking about things that can be eaten, not things that shouldn't be eaten. Anyway, um, uh, let's see here. Verse 21, it is neither good, neither to eat meat, nor drink wine, nor do anything which your brother stumbles, or is offended, or is made weak. Now, he specifically brings up drinking wine. If he brings that up as a precept that you can harm somebody else by drinking wine, then that means that drinking wine must be acceptable. In other words, if it wasn't, he would have said you are not ever to drink wine. And nowhere will you ever see that in the Bible with two exceptions, both under the law and both which cannot apply today. But if you are with somebody that does not drink wine, or any alcohol of any type, or they've had a problem with alcohol. The stupidest thing in the world and the most offensive thing you could do, knowing that, would be to drink in front of them. Or to say, I'm gonna have a glass of wine and I know you you can't, but let me just do this. Just don't do it. And that goes to food. That goes to any other precept. Don't do something to harm somebody that they have a stumbling block with. Don't do that. And that's kind of the idea that he's given there. It is neither uh, good, neither to eat meat nor drink wine, nor do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. Build each other up. The kingdom of God is not about the things of this world. It is about, as he said, righteousness, and peace, and understanding, and joy in the Holy Spirit. All right, um, verse 22. Do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what, uh, what he approves. All right, I have faith that I can have a, a bearer all right, and I know that there's nothing in the Bible that says I can't. I'm making an example. I'm not trying to tell people to to think this way. I am to keep that to myself as a person and not to go putting it out in front of other people, just what he said in the previous verse. I know that it is okay to eat meat that was sacrificed in an idol's temple. If I go to uh, Thailand and, you know, everything over there is sacrificed to an idol at one time or another. Eat it up, and if some Christian comes along and says, what are you doing? You know, then don't eat it in front of them or say, I'm sorry, you know, and maybe teach them a better way. But don't cause a stumbling block to your brother. And as Paul says, happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. You are actually condemning yourself by being the belligerent now in this thing. And the Lord is going to condemn you, not for loss of salvation, but he's going to condemn you for the loss of rewards. Okay, if you're a saved believer, you will lose rewards based on how you act in front of other people. Verse 23, but he who doubts, this is another thing. This is the opposite. He who doubts is condemned if he eats because he does not eat from faith. For whatever, whatever is not from faith is from sin. I am a person that believes that I shouldn't be eating this particular thing. And I see other people doing it and I feel like, oh boy, I better do it. Or they're gonna think I'm a dummy. I am now the one that's condemned because I have a lack of faith in what I'm doing. And I am doing it anyway. And faith is what God looks for throughout the Bible. It The, the pattern is established from the moment that God clothed uh, Adam and Eve, if you remember that uh, sermon about a year and a half ago, all the way through. Nothing changes with God. He expects faith. That That's all. That's all that we have that can reconcile us to God. There's no deed we can do. There's no thing that we can do outside of having faith. This is the world i've made you are the people that i've created i've done these certain things for you have faith in that and that's what god asks us to do so there we go we're done with uh uh chapter 14 in romans and uh, i'll go ahead and read another psalm i'm not going to read the 131st psalm because if i read the 130th last week then i probably read the 131st after that and i don't know how i did that because i always just take what was on the page from the previous week and cut and paste it onto the new one but for somehow i uh i must have read um I don't know how I did that. I'm just uh, amazed at myself. And plus today I'm very scatterbrained. I've had a real bad uh, uh, sinus headache all week and I took some ibuprofen this morning and it's just kind of got me in different directions. But we'll go to the 132nd Psalm. This is a song of ascents. Lord, remember David and all his afflictions, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob. Surely I will not go into the chamber of my house or go up to the comfort of my bed I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, we heard it of it in Ephratah; We found it in the fields of the woods. Let us go into his tabernacle. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, to your resting place, you and the ark of your strength. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness and let your saints shout for joy. For your servant David's sake, do not turn away the face of your anointed. The Lord has sworn in truth to David. He will not turn from it. I will set you upon your throne the fruit of your body. If your sons will keep my covenant and my testimony which I shall teach them, their sons also shall sit upon your throne forever. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her with provision. I will satisfy her poor with bread. I will also clothe her priests with salvation and her saints shall shout aloud for joy. There I will make the horn of David grow. I will prepare a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but upon himself his crown shall flourish. Well, that's the word of the Lord. All right, a couple other announcements I didn't get to before I got into the psalm and I'll get them real quickly before we get into a couple other things is... um, Today is our 70th Genesis sermon, that's seven zero, 0 And uh, so uh, we're moving right along in the book of Genesis. We're in Genesis uh, chapter 30 today. And um, I would like to announce because I, I, I just, like I said, I completely forgot to uh, finish the announcements before I read the psalm that uh, Paul Stoll, who we have been praying for for over a year because he went to Japan as a missionary with a heart problem, finally had his surgery this past Wednesday. He had two uh, of his uh, valves replaced and uh, they were completely calcified. In fact, uh, they broke a couple of needles trying to get in there to, uh, uh, I guess they deaden the nerves or whatever before they cut the pieces off and put on new uh, uh, heart valves. But uh, uh, it was a very long and difficult uh, surgery for the uh, surgeons. But uh, I got there the next morning and he was sitting there up and he was doing okay and a little groggy from the uh, medicine. By the next day, he looked as happy as a lark, and yesterday I went to see him. He looked wonderful. Oh, I see Elena's back there. He's looking wonderful, isn't he? I mean, I just cannot believe how well Paul is looking in just three days after having this major heart surgery, so thank everybody for their prayers that's been praying for him, and what a wonderful blessing. We had another blessing this week is that Arlena here fell over twice, and that she hurt nothing when she did, so uh, uh, you know, you just uh, we have to praise the Lord because uh, one time she fell and bust her arm so badly, she has probably more titanium than a submarine in her arm. But um, uh, you know, the Lord is good to us and he does look after his children. So uh, we wanna thank the Lord for those things. And um, we'll go ahead and uh, get into uh, the rest of our uh, our stuff today, which includes, as always, this day in history. Before we do our sermon, we'll do this day in history. And uh, today is 21 April, okay? So on this day in uh, history in 21 April, way back in 753 BC, it uh, was the traditional date of the foundation of Rome. And uh, Rome, as you know, takes a a very large place in both the Bible and in biblical history. Um, It's uh, the city actually where the book of Acts ends after Jerusalem being the center of attention for eons. The book of Acts goes from Jerusalem and it ends in Rome. And then Paul's first epistle is the uh, epistle to the Romans. And then from there, you see all of Paul's 13 epistles, Hebrews maybe, and that would be a 14th, but it's not a named epistle. But the 13 of Paul all, are all written to the Gentile people. So you've got Corinthians and Ephesians and they're all Gentile nations that he is writing to. And the Bible follows this pattern for a very specific reason. Eventually it goes back to the Jewish people. And it's showing us that there is this insert in the Bible called the church age, and that is where we are now, okay? Now, we don't wanna make the mental leap all of a sudden that Rome is the center of the Christian faith because the book of Acts ends in Rome. We have one denomination that has done that, and they've claimed a supremacy over all Christianity by that claim. That's not the, uh, the thing that we're to learn. As a matter of fact, we could learn that Rome very quickly was not the center of the faith because it goes from there to Galatians to Corinthians. And in other words, it's the Gentile world uh, people at, uh, at large and not just Rome that is focused on. It's just that Rome is the one that was addressed first. It's where accents, and it's also the people that took the um, people of Israel and dispersed them around the world, just as the Bible predicted. And they will also be a part of the end times Uh, when the people of Israel now back in the land will be uh, persecuted and the Antichrist will come, we know that he is going to be of Roman origin based on a prophecy in Daniel nine. So Rome uh, 753 BC, the traditional date of their foundation. And then uh, another 700 and some years later, in 43 BC, Marcus Antonius or Mark Anthony of the uh, uh, Mark Anthony and Cleopatra fame, he was defeated by Octavian near Modena, Italy. And all of these things lead us to the time of what's known as the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. And uh, eventually Rome is this great peaceful empire. And as Paul writes in the Bible, he says, in the fullness of times, uh, speaking of the coming of Christ, Christ came. And that was at a perfect time. God is infinitely wise. He knew the exact moment that would be right. And it's when there was this peace in the world, especially the world around Israel they have these modern roads that can carry the gospel very quickly all over the roman empire and it can just go around the world from there and so uh all of these things were setting up that timing for the the lord of creation to come And so we have this peaceful state we've got these uh, roman roads some of these roman roads are actually still in use today and it's not like we, you know, we get out a a tractor and we uh, tamper things down and we put down a little bit of marl and then we put some asphalt on top of it. They actually went in there and they would dig down eight feet and then they put down a layer of like uh, boulders and a layer of gravel and a layer of sand and then they put their cobblestones on top of it. And so these things are still used thousands of years later whereas after, you know, 15 years, we got to go out and repave our roads. And one isn't better than the other, it's just a different way of doing things. But uh, uh, the roads that are there are very sound and they've marched many, many uh, people off to battle and carried a lot of people around the world with the gospel and uh, wonderful stuff. Um, 1649, this is kind of interesting. It's 1600 and some years later, but uh, it's the Maryland Toleration Act was passed allowing freedom of worship. And I've been where this is posted. It's still behind, it's in the sealed vault. It's, uh, they open it and you can look at it and then they close it in the evening and it's it's uh, fireproof and all this. But um, this was, if you go onto the internet and you read about the Maryland Toleration Act, of course, you're gonna get people that love to say this is where church and uh, state really began to separate. And and they, they use their perverse thinking about these things when it's exactly the opposite. The Maryland Toleration Act said that any Trinitarian believing person, regardless of denomination, had freedom of worship, okay? And in this particular act, it said that if you deny the divinity of Jesus Christ or the Trinity, it was punishable by having your land taken from you and being executed. So this had nothing to do with separation of church and state as these people are trying to insert into it nowadays. What this had to do was uh, establishing the Christian faith as the faith of the state. That's exactly what it was. And that's the way our, our original founding fathers looked at it. They were Christians and they believed that that was the, the uh, religion of the state and that denominations within Christianity had freedom of worship. And anybody else that wanted to worship, Jew or you know Muslim or whatever could do so. But the premise was that Christianity is what we were founded on and what w- this nation was to be worked upon. And uh, once again, this goes to the Trinity decision of, I think it was 1898. Trinity decision said, uh, you know, they had this big 10 year long court battle about uh, is this a Christian nation or not? And their ultimate decision was, yes, this in fact is a Christian nation. They did more study for that decision than in any study ever in the history of the Supreme Court of the United States of America. And uh, they determined that it is a Christian nation. And guess what, that is still on the books today. That wasn't something that's been uh, undone by later supreme courts and that means it's the law of the land and that means that what our current president said a couple years ago about this not being a christian nation he doesn't know his own american law code so there you go little something for you to remember about that 1789 john adams was sworn in as the first u.s vice president he became our uh, second president and uh, then he lost um uh, his bid to in re-election, so he retired back to Massachusetts, but he was our first U.S. vice president and our first president. And uh, his family became very noted in political uh, 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 you know, happenings for many, many eons in America. And uh, he uh, was the person that actually nominated George Washington to be the commander of the uh, armies, the Continental Army. And he's also the person that nominated George, John Marshall to be our uh, U.S. president. Uh, Supreme Court first Chief Justice. So he had a lot of bearing on America. And uh, that was back in 1789. 1836, General Sam Houston defeated Santa Ana at the Battle of San San Jacinto. And this battle decided the independence of Texas, okay? So Texas became independent of uh, uh, any other country at that time, and that was back in 1836. And eventually, Texas became our 28th state in the uh, United States, and that was, I believe, 1845 that that happened. Um, 1856, the Mississippi River was crossed by a rail for the first time between Davenport, Indiana, and Rock Island, Illinois. And uh, it doesn't seem like a really great thing to add into this day in history, but it really is, because the nation was spreading out, and uh, we were moving uh west in large numbers and doing this on train showed that we could now uh get across the great mississippi and things could move quicker and it also shows us that daniel 12 which uh, prophesied that um the knowledge would increase in the end times and people would go to and fro was being fulfilled it was starting to be fulfilled in the mid 1800s and as we know knowledge has just expanded Uh, geometrically since then. So the Bible is true and the end times are here. Unless you don't believe that the end times are here and you believe that all that stuff was fulfilled back in AD 70, but then you've got a problem with all of these verses in the Bible, which say that these things really are gonna come about and have in fact done so. Um, 1862, the US Congress Congress established the Mint, the US Mint in Denver, Colorado. So still moving out. We're in Colorado now and we have a Mint established there. Uh, We also have them now in, I believe, San Francisco, Washington, D.C., Philadelphia. Uh, There's one at West Point, New York. And I believe there's one other mint in Fort Knox. Um, And those are our mints. There may be one more I'm forgetting. But uh, anyway, things are moving west at this time. Um, 1865, uh, last week we saw on this day that President Abraham Lincoln was shot and he died the next day on the 15th. But uh, on this day, the uh, 21st of April, Uh, Abraham Lincoln's funeral train left for, left Washington on its travel through America and off to, I believe it was Springfield, Illinois, where he was buried. Uh, Then in 1898, the US, the Spanish-American War began, the US uh, fighting against Spain. And does anybody remember what prompted that war? What was the final impetus for this? Sinking of the Maine. Sinking of the Maine. that's correct, absolutely. So we've got a couple history buffs here. that was uh, back on this day in 1898. And that war uh, lasted three months, two weeks, and I believe it was two days. It was a very short war. It was a decisive victory for the United States. And uh, we freed the Philippines from Spanish rule, Cuba from Spanish rule, etc. And then uh, we moved in and did not colonize. Big difference between America and other places is we did not colonize, but rather we went in, we were Uh, allowed to stay. We stayed in the Philippines until they finally told us they wanted us to go. And that was when I was there in I think 1983 or I'm sorry, 85, 86, 89. Uh, It must have been 89 because my daughter was born and she's from the Philippines and she was born in 87. So it must have been about 1989 uh, that the uh, Philippine uh, kicked us out. might've been even in the nineties. I might've been in Malaysia at the time. Anyway, um, so uh, let's see here. That was uh Spanish American war, then 1916. This is a fun one. Bill Carlisle, the infamous last train robber, robbed a train in Hannah, Wyoming. And uh, Hannah means grace. That comes from the Bible. As a matter of fact, I'm going to mention her in the uh, sermon today. So kind of, I didn't even think of that until right now, but uh, uh, Hannah, uh, Wyoming. And he was known as the white masked bandit. So uh, I like that old kind of uh, rough and uh, rugged history from old America. So 1918, uh, a guy named uh, Manfred von Richthofen. Anybody know what his name was? His uh, The Red Baron, good. Yeah, he uh, he was shot down and killed in uh, World War One at this time. So he was a great hero of the uh, German, uh, uh, you know, uh, Luftwaffe. And he had one of those stars that was, I guess, for great bravery. Uh, I've seen his picture and... Uh, uh, Anyway, he, uh, he was a great fighter pilot and uh, he put his boots on that day and he didn't take them off that night. Somebody else had to do it for him if they took them off at all. But uh, that is the way of the world. And as I try to find one of these applications each and every week, we are all going to meet our final destiny. Then we all have an appointment with death or the rapture. Those are the only two choices for us. So uh, uh, if you have never called on Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, The content of this sermon won't do you a great deal of good, but the last five minutes, I hope you'll pay attention because I always tell people about how you can be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. And it's the most important decision that you will ever make in your life. So uh, keep that in mind. 1943, uh, US President Franklin Delano Roosevelt announced that several Doolittle pilots had been executed by the Japanese. Uh, The impossible was done when they actually made a bombing mission against Japan. We had this great span of ocean, which we couldn't get across. And uh, uh, we were moving from island to island, but we couldn't get close enough. But we needed to make a mark against the Japanese to get rally support from the Americans. And so James Doolittle, this uh, man, I believe he went from lieutenant colonel to general in a day because of his efforts. Um, He uh, suggested that they fly these bombers off the bow of a battleship or a, a aircraft carrier. And uh, they in fact did this and they raided against Japan. Uh, most of them made it off to China or elsewhere and they, they had no way of returning. They had It was a one-way trip for them. And uh, those pilots that were in Japan were executed. And uh, the Japanese were so angry that we had gone in and bombed their country when it was just, you know, how such a short time two years before that they had bombed our country and actually less than two years because it was December 7th that that happened. But um, we have rules of engagement in war. It's called the Geneva Convention. And uh, most countries do try to live by that. Japan failed at that. And uh, uh, anyway, those people lost their lives because of it. But um, that was uh, 1943. And then 1959, another fun one, the largest fish ever hooked. And my wife is salivating right now because she loves fish. Um, it was hooked by a rod and reel, was caught by a guy named Alf Dean. It was 16 feet 10 inches long. It was a white shark that weighed 2,664 pounds. So that's the biggest uh, fish that was ever caught by a hook and reel by one man. But I will tell you that I have a picture at my house of a manta ray that was caught right out here by four men. If anybody remembers Marty Martell's fish camp that was right across the road many, many years ago, Marty Martell and three other men were out and they caught a manta ray weighed over two tons, over 4,000 pounds. And I will post that on Facebook today. Um, but uh, amazing, amazing. And if you've never seen a manta ray, it's a, it's a stingray. It's, they're giant. And they've got that big open mouth and they just sweep through the ocean like a, a stealth bomber. And I have seen one one day out here playing. Then it would come up out of the water and it would almost fly. And then it would go back into the water. And it was massive, but it certainly wasn't 4,000 pounds. But uh, the marvel of God's creation, wonderful stuff. And this guy caught a, a shark that was, 2664 pounds and uh, let's see here 1984 France in France doctors found the uh, virus that was believed to cause AIDS and uh, actually the cause of AIDS goes back to uh, the fall of man and our sin and that goes right to Romans 1 that uh, these things come about us because of our own moral depravity and we receive as the Bible says the due penalty for our perversion and so Uh, all of these things. You know, uh, Athens, Greece was completely wiped out because of their immorality. Nobody knows what the disease was, but it wiped them out. And uh, uh, this is what God does is he does things to correct us. And we think we've won this battle and something else will come along because of our own immorality. Uh, And then we have in 1992, finally, a guy named Robert Alton Harris, became the first person executed by the state of California in 25 years. He had uh, murdered two teenage boys. And uh, the Bible is very clear that uh, if you shed man's blood by man's man, shall your blood be shed. And when we get away from that biblical precept, we have problems in our society, any society. Because uh, the book of Proverbs talks about if you delay punishment, what's gonna happen? People are gonna see and they're not gonna care. And uh, they're just gonna be more wild. And that's where we're at is we fail to punish wrongdoing. And that doesn't matter if it's me. If I go out in a fit of anger and I kill somebody, my life is forfeit. We don't evaluate what made me angry or what I was drinking that day to make me angry or what my mother did to me when I was five years old. It doesn't matter. Those things are irrelevant to the fact that I've taken a human life. And so I need to stand on the Bible, whether it's me or whether it's somebody else, that if somebody has taken a man's life, his life is forfeit. Okay, that's just the way of the world and that's the way those things are and that is this day in history. Okay, so we're gonna read our text now which is Genesis 30, verse one through 13 and this is called Two More Wives and Four More Sons. So uh, we're gonna start at verse one. Now, when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, Rachel envied her sister and said to Jacob, give me children or else I die. And Jacob's anger was aroused against Rachel and he said, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? So she said, here's my maid Bilhah. Go into her and she will bear a child on my knees that I also may have children by her. Then she gave him Bilhah, his maid as a wife. And Jacob went into her. And Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged my case and he has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore she called his name Dan. And Rachel's maid Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, with great wrestlings I have wrestled with my sister and indeed I have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had stopped bearing, she took Zilpah, her maid, and gave her to Jacob, his wife. And Leah's maid Zilpah bore Jacob a son. Then Leah said, a troop comes. So she called his name Gad. And Leah's maid Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. Then Leah said, I am happy, for the daughters will call me blessed. So she called his name Asher. That's the word of the Lord. and it's a beautiful story, but there's a lot involved in it. Leah is the older and she's the less loved wife of Jacob and she had four sons in a row and Rachel had none. When we want and we don't get, we can often act in a way which is contrary to what the Bible would have for us. Envy and jealousy are torches which set our lives on fire and which quench any joy that we might otherwise have. They are often the source of even greater troubles in our life as well and they lead us down all kinds of wrong paths james 4 says these words where do wars and fights come from among you do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members you lust and you do not have you murder and covet and cannot obtain you fight in war yet you do not have because you do not ask you ask and you do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures Now, coveting and envy are not exactly the same thing, but they spring from the same place where discontentment lies. When we envy what other people have, it becomes coveting. Although it's the 10th commandment, and so it seems less important than some of the bigger ones like murder, coveting actually breaks the greatest commandment of all. Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? And he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Well, it breaks that second commandment as well. When we covet, we fail to love God with all of our heart. And we fail to trust that what he has given us is right and proper. And we're also coveting something that belongs to our neighbor and we're losing our love for our neighbor in the process. When we do this, we place something above God and that becomes a violation of the first of the 10 commandments. Coveting, as James notes, also leads to other sins such as murder. So we're breaking commandment after commandment just by coveting. Today, we're going to see how envy affects the lives of Jacob's wives in some of these ways. But we're also going to see, as we've seen so many times in the past, how God is able to take our wrongs and bring good out of them. Through a war of envy between these two sisters comes another four sons of the 12 sons of Israel. Our text verse for today comes from Galatians chapter 5. It says, if we live in the Spirit, let us also Walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Living in the Spirit, according to uh, how you would interpret the Bible, is synonymous with having been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. When you put your faith in Him, you are sealed with the Spirit. You are living in the Spirit. But this doesn't mean that you walk in the Spirit. Paul tells us also to walk in the Spirit. When we do, We're gonna keep our eyes on the right things and we're gonna have our lives directed toward proper goals and we will have the Lord as the placement of the highest prize in our life. Walking in the spirit isn't just a thing that we do on Sunday morning, but it is an attitude of our hearts and it is an attitude of our lives that we should be doing from moment to moment and in any situation. Walking in the spirit is being attuned to the things of God and trusting him each step of the way. So let's determine to do this. And one way that we can do it is to apply his words to our own lives. And so may God speak to us through his word today and may his glorious name ever be praised. Okay, we have three thoughts today. The first is the green-eyed monster. Uh, Shakespeare, he wrote The uh, Merchant of Venice and in there he wrote these words, how all other passions fleet to air as doubtful thoughts and rash embrace despair and shuddering fear and green-eyed jealousy. Verse one today, now when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, Rachel envied her sister and said to Jacob, give me children or else I die. Rachel is Jacob's beloved and she's seen her older sister bear four children. It's been at least five and maybe more years since they were married and she still hasn't had a child. In the culture of the Bible, bearing children was the highest honor of a woman and having none was considered a point of shame this sentiment is found in both testaments and numerous times it's not something that is inserted by the reader or by male chauvinists of today's society rather it is something that is plainly and openly evident in the bible bearing and raising children may not seem like the great noble role that the bible proclaims it but the bible does proclaim it after these Many years, it says that she was still barren and that she envied her sister. And this didn't suddenly crop up after the fourth child was born, but it had festered probably since the birth of the first child. Hence her statement to Jacob, give me children or else I die. She is a lady that is at her wits end and she has fallen to the point of blaming her husband for something that is her own problem in her own body and something which God has kept her from having a child. But even she would know, she would certainly know in her mind that the problem is in her and not with Jacob. Leah has been having one child after another, and so there's nothing physically wrong with Jacob, and she knows this. And he certainly spent time with her, or what she said to Jacob, she would have said differently. In the end, God has withheld her from having children. The envy that she has is a poison within her, and it will lead in various directions in the coming verses. But God is going to use this envy to establish his people who would come from Jacob. As we see time and time again, God brings good out of evil. The Bible has a lot to say about envy and jealousy, and it's something that every one of us needs to watch in our lives constantly. The book of Proverbs chapter 14 says these words, "'A sound heart is life to the body, "'but envy is rottenness to the bones.'" In the Song of Solomon, we have words that were written that which almost seem to point directly back to the life of Rachel because she's eventually going to die in the process of giving birth. It says here, for love is as strong as death, jealousy as cruel as the grave. It's flames or flames of fire, a most vehement flame. There are three other women that I wanna bring in right now. They're in the Bible and they're directly tied to Rachel. The first is Sarah. And she's tied to the family of Rachel through the great, great grandfather named Tara. Sarah didn't bear a child for probably 70 or more years of marriage. And by the time she did, she was an old woman of 90 years of age. The second is Rebecca, who was her aunt, her father's sister. She couldn't bear. And so Isaac, her husband prayed to the Lord and she finally conceived. That took 19 years for that occur, but the waiting did end. And then we have a third woman who contrasts Rachel in the Bible. Her name is Hannah. She's the mother of Samuel the prophet and her story is given in the book of one Samuel. Rachel is barren and she envies. Hannah is barren and she quietly weeps. Rachel says that she must have children or she'll die. And in fact, she does die when she bears her second child. Hannah, on the other hand, prays to the Lord she receives a child and then she has three more boys and two more girls. Rachel is aggressive in her speech and her conduct towards her husband, but Hannah remains devout and submissive to her husband and to the Lord. And interestingly, Hannah is from the tribe of Rachel's grandson, Ephraim, who was born to her own son, Joseph. It is as if the lesson was learned in Rachel, and so Hannah doesn't want to be remembered in the same way. We come to verse two. And Jacob's anger was aroused against Rachel. And he said, Am I in the place of God, who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? As should be apparent to anyone who has been married for a while, we fall in and out of emotional love all the time. That doesn't mean we don't love our partner, because love is a volitional act of the will as well. But we do fall in and out of emotional love. As our mood changes, we can get very upset at the object of our affection. Jacob loved Rachel, but her accusations really really do upset him and so he cries out Elohim Anohi. do I stand in God's place? And speaking on this particular verse there's an ancient document called the Targum of Jerusalem and it says that there are four keys that God does not deliver to either an angel or to a seraph and barrenness is one of them. The other are the clouds the heart and the grave these four belong to the providence of the sovereign God alone children are a gift of God and his only, and therefore God and not man is to be reached out when we need or when we want to have children. But unlike Sarah, Rebecca, and Hannah, Rachel blames Jacob. And so what does he do? He turns and elevates it right to the place where it belongs, the providence of God. Having said that, there is no birth and no conception which are a surprise to him, and he has in his wisdom allowed them all, including those for which we try to find a reason to abort. But the lesson of the Bible is that both barrenness and conception occur by his hand. Therefore, we need to address the barrenness to God in petition and the conception to God in thanks, not in murder. The Bible never once makes a distinction between the validity of a life of a child in a womb and one which is already born. And I wish that somebody would tell that to our president and to our leaders who are on the left who seem adamant on aborting every possible child that they can. The Bible shows us that this is not what God intends for us and that he is highly displeased with the actions we're taking in this nation. There are other means both of having children and of raising children, even in biblical times. And Rachel turns to one of those means now and the Bible makes no comment on this matter in the negative. In other words, what we are going to see is considered acceptable and normal, just as it was in Abraham's time. Verse three, so she said, here is my maid Bilhah, go unto her and she will bear a child on my knees, that I also may have children by her. Just as Sarah did for Abraham with her maidservant Hagar, Rachel now suggests the same to Jacob. This takes us all the way back to a sermon I did at the time of Abraham where, I said that many commentaries really got down on Abraham and they said that he was lacking faith or that he was uh, you know, wrong for sleeping with his maidservant, Hagar. But this is an entirely wrong conclusion that they're making. There was nothing wrong with it then and there's nothing wrong with it now. And these verses about Jacob show us this. If they were wrong, then Jacob would have learned from his grandfather from the lessons of the past and he would not have followed suit in this particular thing that they're doing. But this is an acceptable and normal custom of the times. There's nothing in this that violates either the nature or the tenor of scripture. Rachel offers her maid who is her property and her name is Bilhah, which means either foolish or timid. Rachel says that she will bear a child on my knees. And there are actually two thoughts in this one concept which she's stating. The first is that Bilhah, believe it or not, is literally going to sit in Rachel's lap as the child is being born, thus symbolizing that it belongs to Rachel, who owns Bilhah. Secondly, that because this child now belongs to her, that it will be dandled on her knees as her own. And this sediment is found in uh, Isaiah chapter 66 concerning the nation of Israel. Here's what it says there. Behold, I will extend peace to her, Israel, like a river, and the glory of the Gentiles like a flowing stream. Then you shall feed. On her sides you shall be carried and be dandled on her knees. All right, so when Rachel says that I may have children by her, she uses the word the ibane, which means to be built up by her. It comes from the word bana, which actually means to build. And from those same letters comes the word ben, which means son. In other words, just as a house is built with wood and stones, a family is built through children. These words, banah, which is to build, and ben, which is son, are spelled with the letters "bet" and nun. "Bet" means house, and nun means an heir, or the continuance of a generation. Now, this might seem to you like an unimportant lesson in Hebrew, but the mind of these people is being reflected in the words that they are choosing to use. Ultimately, the details are included by God in his word for us to understand what has happened and why. Although the New Testament now is going to be written in Greek, this same Hebrew mind is transferred over by the apostles. And so we can more readily understand Jesus' work when we look at it from this perspective. The New Testament building of God's house is seen more clearly when we understand that we are living stones being built into a spiritual house. Peter says that in his epistle. It's not good to separate these Old and New Testaments in such a way that we no longer understand this pictorial mindset that comes from these ancient stories. We are sons or Ben of God being built into his house, which is the, the letter baked. And we are heirs or Paul calls us joint heirs with Christ. That would be the nun of God's promises. So we have the house, we have the uh, status that we're sons, and we have the status that we are heirs all tied up in this one word from this ancient story. This is reflected in her words to Jacob so that we get by it a much better picture of what Jesus is doing and how it relates to us in the church. He is building this house, this spiritual house out of sons, not only from the Jewish people, but from the Gentile people as well, all pictured by Jacob and his four wives. Verse four, then she gave him Bilhah, her maid, his wife, and Jacob went into her. The sons of the concubines normally in a society like this were not given an inheritance with the sons of the wives. However, when a son is born under the name of the wife, such as is happening here, then that son will be a son of that wife and he will share in the inheritance. Ishmael was an exception. She was born in, uh, he, he was born in the same way from Hagar, but God told Abraham to excuse Ishmael from the house. But all of Jacob's sons are going to participate in this inheritance. The house of Israel includes all 12 sons. Later in Jacob's life, Bilhah, this girl that he's with right now is going to bring a lot of trouble into the family. Reuben, the oldest son of Jacob is going to go in and he's going to sleep with her. It does not say what Jacob did to her. Never mentions it, but it does say that because of what he did, he lost his birthright. Jacob took away the birthright of the firstborn because of the actions that are happening with this maid right here. Verse five, and Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. As sure as children are a gift from God, Bilhah has a son. So we know that Jacob's words or Rachel's words to Jacob were misplaced and they were unwarranted. Jacob is capable of having children and he's proven it not only through Leah, but he's also proven it through Bilhah now. Rachel's barrenness is from the Lord. It is not from Jacob, verse six. Then Rachel said, God has judged my case and he has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore, she called his name, Dan. The name Dan means judge. Later in the Bible, we're gonna see a a book uh, written by a guy named Daniel. Dan is judge, E is my, it's possessive. And then you have L is God. God is my judge, all right? Rachel names the child based on an appeal to God and indicating that God ruled in her favor. And so she uses his name in the exclamation that she gets. She says, Danani Elohim, God has judged my case. But unlike Leah, this is an important point we're gonna make here. Unlike Leah, she had her four sons and she invoked the name of the Lord, Jehovah. Rachel doesn't do that. She uses a general name for God, which is Elohim. The Lord or Jehovah is the one who directs the plan of salvation throughout the Bible. And he also monitors the covenant, which was established with Abraham and goes through Isaac and now to Jacob, okay? It seems curious that he's not mentioned now by Rachel, but it seems understood that it will be through Leah that the Messiah is going to come, not through Rachel. At least the Bible record gives us hints of this so that we can comprehend what God is doing in history and why. Verse seven, and Rachel's maid Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. This is gonna be the sixth son of Jacob and the second born for Rachel by Bilhah. And so now one half of the sons of Israel have come into the world. Verse eight, then Rachel said with great wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and indeed I have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. All right, this name Naphtali is a little bit harder to pin down than some of the others. Naphtali either means my wrestling or it means my twisting. If it is wrestling, as it's translated in the New King James Version, then it is referring to the struggle that she feels that she's in with Leah. It's a struggle for being the preeminent wife of Jacob. If so, her exclamation at his birth, which I read, with great wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and I have prevailed. It means that they were in a battle and she's now on top. But this word Naphtali comes from a Hebrew word, which is patal, and that means to twist. And so one translator, and this I find this very interesting, he says, he translates this verse this way. He says, by the twistings of God, I am entwisted with my sister. The difference here in this translation is important because in the first, it is her struggle against her sister, and she's prevailed. But in the second translation, it is God's designs that have allowed her to participate in the building of the family, which was only previously through her sister. If it's the first translation, she's showing an arrogance by condemning her sister, even after God has granted her a child. If it is the second, then she is showing gratitude to God for her being included in his plans for building up the family. And so you can see how important different translations are. And I would recommend as I do many times, that if you have a Bible study, have people bring different versions and talk about those differences. Or if you read the Bible often, which you should be doing, then I would recommend that you read maybe one Bible in the morning and a different Bible in the afternoon so that you don't get myopia when you're reading because we don't know the actual truth of the name of this particular person, Naphtali, what it means. And that helps us to understand and think through what God is doing and why. All right, our second thought today, another wife, more children verse nine, when Leah saw that she had stopped bearing, she took Zilpah, her maid, and gave her to Jacob, as wife. It matters a lot less what Rachel did, seeing as how she was barren, but what Leah does here shows her own streak of jealousy. There may be one little thing that I'll mention in a minute to uh, disprove that, but it seems like she's being jealous here. Leah stopped bearing for a, a while, and Bilhah had two children for Rachel. And so Leah decides now that she can go ahead and do the same. And I got to tell you, I don't mean to be perverse here, but I'm sure that Jacob didn't mind any of this a bit, or he would have told Leah, no. Instead, he becomes a man with four wives. This one here is Leah's maidservant who was given to her on the night of their wedding. The name Zilpah, her name, comes from the Hebrew word Zalaf, and that's not found in the Bible, but it means to sprinkle. She now takes the center stage of the Bible for a very short time. Here we go, verse 10. And Leah's maid Zilpah bore Jacob a son. Like I said, Jacob is probably not at all unhappy about this arrangement. If he were, he would have told her to just be content with her four sons and don't worry about it. But he took Zilpah with no record of complaint. He has a fourth wife now and he has another son born to this fourth wife. And we should note that there could have been daughters born born during this time frame okay only one daughter of jacob is noted in the bible directly but elsewhere it speaks in the plural of jacob's daughters now they're not mentioned because the family line travels through the father not through the mother not because the bible is chauvinistic or it doesn't like women or it diminishes women or any of these crazy things that people say that has nothing to do with it it has to do with the fact that god is working in history and he's showing us a line of people that are being born and what's going on with them and the name of the Jewishness travels through the father in the Bible. But guess what? The Jewishness of people nowadays travels through the mother and not the father. And so that's kind of an interesting little twist in history since the end of the biblical era. I don't know why that is, but uh, I've read some commentaries on it. And they just, that's what the Jewish rabbis decided. Is that Jewishness now descends through the mother instead of the father, unlike the Bible. Verse 11, then Leah said, a troop comes. So she called his name Gad. The name Gad, like Naphtali, is an an interesting study and it's very difficult to pin down the exact meaning or what she was thinking. It could be, as some people speculate, that Leah actually stopped bearing because Jacob stopped going into her. If this is the case, then her giving Zilpah to Jacob was as much of a necessity as what Rachel did with her own maid, okay? That's just speculation, but it could be that. She may have been desperate to find the love that had eluded her and a husband, and so she wants more children. So gad can mean either troop, meaning a large group, or it can mean fortune. If she is thinking of a troop when she says this, she's excited about this large family, which is coming from her, a whole troop. But if it's fortune, her exclamation would be that she is having good luck in this struggle. It seems that either way, The name Gad is a reflection of her own sad state. And unlike her other children that she is born, she never invokes the name of the Lord in either thanks or praise. Remember, she did that with her last four children. She doesn't do it now. Verse 12, And Leah's maid Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. This is Zilpah's second and last son, just like Bilhah. Between the two of them come four sons of Israel and any unnamed daughters. Verse 13, Then Leah said, I'm happy, for the daughters will call me blessed. So she called his name Asher. There is no dispute by anybody what the meaning of Asher is, it means happy. And it comes from a verb, which means to go straight. For most of us, we tend to get happy when things go well. We're working on a project and it goes straight, we're happy. Or if we're going on a a trip and we take the straight route and get there quicker, we're happy. And that's where the idea of Asher comes from. Leah is happy at the birth of this son, And she gives the reason why. She says, the daughters will call me blessed. Again, she doesn't mention the name of the Lord, nor does she include him in praise or thanks or any other way. This is a lady who has now turned to the wrong place for notoriety. Unlike her, Mary, the mother of Jesus, was told that she's gonna have a son and her words were directed to the Lord and in the future hope of blessing. In Luke chapter one, we read these beautiful words from Mary's mouth. It says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God my savior for he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant for behold henceforth all generations will call me blessed and that leads to our third and final thought today which is a lesson for us if we can simply be content with the life that we've been given it will save us from all kinds of troubles I'm not saying that we shouldn't look for something more or have desires for other things It's natural for humans to want to learn more, to make things better, to tinker with things, to set new goals, to achieve new goals, all of that kind of stuff. The world has moved forward in wonderful and great ways because people have not been content to sit idly by and do the same thing day after day, but instead they've looked for new and inventive ways of doing stuff. Projects keep us busy and they keep us from being idle. And you know the old proverb, idle hands are the devil's workshop. But these things... Being productive usually happen in the life of a person who is already content with their life. A person who isn't content is gonna take shortcuts to get what they want. Instead of working for something, they may go and steal it. A person who is content rather will work for what they want. And even better than the person who is content is the person who adds in prayer for the thing that he or she is lacking. It's one thing to work for something and that you want and not get it. And it's another thing entirely to work for something that you want after having prayed for it and still not get it. When God is in the equation, we tend to accept not getting it with an understanding that he is still in control. Leah started out well, but when things turned for her, she began to get envious and she took actions which did not include the Lord. After Asher was born, she said, I'm happy but it doesn't mean that she was. There is no note of gratitude or thanks to God in her words. Rachel, on the other hand, let herself get more and more envious of Leah until she made an unjust claim towards her husband. There's no hint or record that she ever prayed about anything. And there's no hint of including God in thanks or praise when her plans to have children through her maid came about. The fact that those things are not mentioned is a good indication that they didn't happen because the Bible tends to record those type of things when they do happen. Eventually, she's gonna get what she wants and she's gonna have children of her own. She's gonna have a son named Joseph and then she's going to die having a second son named Benjamin. The fact that uh, these things are coming about in her life just show that God does give us what we want and sometimes it's not always the best course of action when looked at from God's perspective. And I'm gonna give you an example. A guy named King Hezekiah. He was a great king of Israel and he'd done wonderful things for the people of Israel. And he was told by Isaiah, he got a, a boil and he was told by Isaiah that you were going to die, put your house in order. And what did he do? He turned his face to the wall and he cried out to the Lord. And the Lord honored him by giving him an additional 15 years before Isaiah even got across the courtyard. He turned around and said, turn around, or he told him, turn around and go back and tell him, I'm gonna grant you 15 more years. But during that time, those 15 years, King Hezekiah had a son who would become the downfall of the people of Israel, a guy named Manasseh. He was a very wicked king. Also during the same 15 year period, he made a mistake by inviting the Babylonians to come in and see the wealth of his house and all the wealth of the land of Israel. This is something that the Lord disapproved of because it showed pride in him. And it resulted, believe it or not, in the Babylonians remembering what they saw and saying, we're gonna get that. And they came back in war and took it all. If he had died as the Lord originally planned those 15 years earlier, neither of those things would have happened. The thing that we need to do is to accept what the Lord has for us as his will, whether we like it or not. And the Bible gives us his will and what we're supposed to do with our life. But the good thing for us is that even when we don't do this, it may cost us in the end, but in the end, he is going to work it out for good. And I'm going to give you an example, which tends to upset people every time I bring it up, but the Bible says that women are not to be preachers. That's just what it says. I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. And we have women that preach. And I have people, friends that post these women's sermons online all the time, and they say all of these type of things. And and some of it's rather good information that these women are preaching, but they are being disobedient to the Bible. Okay. Now, Good things actually come about, even though through their disobedience, good things are coming about because people are being saved and they're learning about the Bible. But in the end, that person is the one that's going to suffer for their own disobedience. I had a person yesterday, as a matter of fact, it was your girl. She asked me, why can't women preach? And I told her, because the Bible says don't do it. And I said, it doesn't matter whether I like that or not. I say simply, I didn't write this book. God gave it to us and we have to be obedient to this book or we're gonna have these same type of things occur in our lives, all right? We may suffer because of disregarding this book. Others may suffer because of it, but he has already figured these things out into his overall plan. In the end, we are going to look back on our lives and we're gonna see how masterfully he has woven them together. He's gonna take everything that we've done, good and bad, and the things that we're gonna do in the future, right and wrong, and they will be so beautifully woven together that we will only see the marvel of this finished tapestry. There will be no sadness, there's gonna be no tears, there's just gonna be everlasting joy. Life is a learning experience, but it's also something that all of us need to handle personally. There are choices to make, there are paths that need to be decided on, and God has included these stories, These obscure, seeming obscure stories for many reasons. I got to tell you what, one of these passages, like the one we've looked at today, can have many applications. You have 50 people give 50 sermons on this one thing, and they're all going to be different. And none of them would be wrong if they're properly handling the word. But each story certainly does one thing. It gives us insights into what is right and what is wrong. We can take them and we can use these stories to make our own choices based on what we've learned. This is the beauty and this is the marvel of knowing your Bible. It is a doorway into understanding yourself and what you need to do with your life and it will show you how to do those things better because it was written by the one who fashioned you in the first place. If he knows you and I assure you he does, then he knows what is best for you. And because he loves you, he will reveal it to you if you will just take the time to check. As I say time and time and time again, if you wanna know this God who created everything, this unseen creator, you must know Jesus Christ. You cannot know God apart from knowing Jesus Christ and you cannot know. It is not possible for you to know Jesus Christ without knowing your Bible. The two are... Impossible. Now somebody can explain the Bible to you, but you still, the information came from the Bible. This book, this beautiful book with these fascinating and often intriguing stories is given so that you can know what is right and then you can act on that knowledge. Keep reading your Bible, keep speaking to the Lord in prayer, keep your eyes far from envy and be content with the life that the Lord has given you. You are here for a reason then you have a good plan and a purpose that the Lord intends to work out through you. Walk in the spirit, hold hands with the Lord and keep your Bible close at all times. Finally, in case you have never heard why Jesus came, and I'm sure everybody here has, but if there's somebody that's never made this mental connection, give me just another minute to explain this. The Bible tells us that we are created by God. And yes, there is a God, it takes it as an axiom. And it says that we decided to disobey God and do things our own way. And so we turned from him and we did do our things our own way. And when we did, it separated us from him. Sin entered the world, death comes through sin. The wages of sin is death is what the Bible teaches us. But the Bible also says, but that wonderful word, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And God asks us to make a choice Am I going to face you on my own or am I gonna face you because of what somebody else did? Somebody that was perfect and that never sinned. And so it says, if you call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. That's what God asks you to do. Call on Jesus Christ as Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. He came out of the grave because he had never sinned. The wages of sin is death. And now he just simply asks us to have faith in that action. And if we do that, we are now reconciled to God forever. And I'm one of these guys that loves theology and I love the depth of the Bible, but we're gonna take Tony out here in a few minutes and we're gonna baptize him. And it comes down to that simple thing. Have you accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? Have you called on him and do you believe that God raised him from the dead? And then I'm gonna ask him one more question. Are you willing to follow him in believer's baptism? And that's it. That's the only two questions I'm gonna ask him. And that's what God expects of you as well. Just that simple act of faith. And then in your first act of obedience, go out and be baptized. But you know what? If you're never baptized, you're not gonna lose your salvation. You're just being stiff-necked towards the Lord. So take time to think these things through. Don't worry about the deeper theology. Get to know your Bible first and then pursue the deeper theology all the rest of your life. This is what I would ask of all of you. All right, we uh, uh, have next week, Genesis 30, verses 14 through 24. It's called, God has taken away my reproach she's going to have her child finally. All right, a closing verse for you today comes from 1 Corinthians chapter three. It kind of ties in pretty well with these two girls and how they're fighting with each other. Paul says, and I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual people, but as the carnal, as babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it. And even now you're still not able, for you are still carnal. For where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? Don't be envious of each other. Don't be in strife with each other. Don't have dissensions among each other. Instead, build each other up. Don't be like Rachel and Leah, but instead speak good about the Lord to other people and fellowship with other Christians without fighting with them. This is what we would be asked to do. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you and he has a good plan and a purpose for you. So call on him and let him do marvelous things for you and through you. One more thing before we take communion today. This is our poem based on these uh, verses that we looked at. This is called Two Wives and Four More Children. Rachel saw that she bore no children, though she did try. Rachel envied her sister, and to Jacob she said, words of distress, give me children or else I die. Would you rather have me living or find me dead? And Jacob's anger was aroused, and he did fume. And he said, am I in the place of God, who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Be careful. Your words on dangerous paths do trod. So she said, here is my maid Bilhah, go into her and she will bear a child on my knees that I may have children by her for sure. Do this for me, Jacob, won't you please? Then she gave him Bilhah, her maid, his wife. And we learned that Jacob went into her and Bilhah conceived and brought forth new life, a son. And Rachel thought it was a good thing for sure. Then Rachel said, God has judged my case and he has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore, she called his name Dan in that place and she knew that Leah's battle wasn't won. And Rachel's maid Bilhah conceived again and we see that she bore Jacob, a second son. Then Rachel said, with great wrestlings then, I have wrestled with my sister and indeed I have won. So she called his name Naphtali. His name means my wrestling, you see. When Leah saw that her bearing seemed done, she took Zilpah her maid and gave her to Jacob as wife. And Leah's maid Zilpah bore Jacob a son and in her was a newly gained vigor for life. And Leah's maid Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. Then Leah said, I am happy. The daughters will call me blessed. So she called his name Asher, naming this one because of the straightforward accomplishment of her quest. Such is the continuing story of Jacob's life and the sons born to him from the wives that he had. He went to Pedanaram to gain a wife and ended with four. Hey, that's not bad. The sons of Jacob became the tribes of Israel. And in this group of people, there's an amazing story. Their struggles with God, the Bible does tell. And through them came our King of glory. These people brought in the Messiah for all and to them he will return someday. Remember to pray for them, that on him they will call. These are his people, as the Bible does say. But we too are his people because of his shed blood. And we are grafted into the holy olive tree. We share in the sap and the glorious flood of the Holy Spirit given to us so abundantly. Thank you, God, for you love all the people, Jew and Gentile alike. We are the children of God. Help us to shout out the word from every church steeple. Yes, may we do so wherever our feet do trod. Great and glorious God above, thank you for your wonderful love. Thank you for our Savior Jesus through whom you have given eternal life to us. Hallelujah and amen. Great and glorious God Thank you for every blessing which you've blessed us. Thank you for your wonderful word, which just tells us these beautiful stories of how much you love us and how you are building a home out of us, a spiritual temple where you can reside and dwell for all eternity. Thank you for allowing us to be sons in your great and glorious kingdom to come. Thank you for every other blessing you've given us for the food of the past week and for the anticipation of good things in the week ahead. And Lord, we once again thank you for bringing Paul through his surgery and for Arlena being safe from uh, her two falls and for every other thing that you've done that, which is just eluding me right now. Each person here has something in their heart which they're happy about. Each person has things in their heart that they're distressed about. Look into us and search us out and take care of those things according to the riches of your wisdom and mercy. And when these things come about, help us to remember to give you the praise and the honor and the glory that you alone are due. And this we pray in the exalted, beautiful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, amen.